Section 50 of England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World Story, Volume 10. England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 50. Coronation of George V. 1911. By Sidney Brooks. A grey, windy day, and none the less British for being so. All London pouring abbeywoods. The cars and the underground trains splashed with the unwanted blaze of admirals, generals, and privy councillors' uniforms. Hordes of sightseers with luncheon bags and baskets. Much tripping over swords and earnest gazing at gold braid and scarlet tunics and silk knee-breeches. Amid a torrent of festive into consequential talk as the train speeds on the whole of victoria street one solid mass of motors peers coaches taxicabs and brooms each with its vision of nodding plumes and gleaming jewels and resplendent masculinity within the abbey as one draws near it greyer more venerable and reposeful than one has ever known it the fit hearthstone for a world-wide race a glimpse of stands and tiers multitudinously crowded of garlands poles bunting and glittering emblems of windows and roofs alive with faces then the turning into dean's yard usually the quietest of all the little havens in which london abounds but now bustling and brilliant with troops and guests and officials women in court dresses with gorgeous trains carried over the arms naval and military men, judges and officers of the court, and so into the cloisters, till I am directed for the entrance I want, and mount up and up and round and round the seven hundred-year-old corkscrewy stone staircase, till I am drawn through an arch by a courteous and bespangled usher, and find myself in the south triforium, sixty feet or so above the nave. It is eight o'clock. The royal guests are not due to leave Buckingham Palace till nine-thirty, and the king and queen will not reach the abbey before eleven, so there is plenty of time to look around. The triforium itself is mainly given up to journalists, but among them are not a few army and navy officers and their wives, for whom seats could not be found elsewhere, and also a gathering of white-robed scholars from Westminster School come to assert the historic privilege of acclaiming the king. One wanders about, sampling one coin of advantage after another, and finding each different and each superb. The arch nearest to the western door, by which the royal guests, the princes and princesses of the blood royal, and their majesties, are to enter later on, and through which already is pouring a stream of peers and peeresses, offers perhaps the best view of all. Craning over its edge, and looking down on the floor below and up the whole length of the abbey, what does one see? What will be the sight that will greet the king and queen on their entrance? First, a rich blue Worcester carpet, stretching along the vista to the carven height of the choir-screen, on which are massed the orchestra and trumpeters, round the scarlet, conspicuous robes of Sir Frederick Bridge, the conductor. On either side of the carpet runs a wide border of softer, blued grey, up to the edge of the partitions, three feet or so in height, wall off the seats from the abbey floor. The partitions are hung with silver brocade, heavily stamped with patterns in royal blue. 
Behind them, row upon row, tier upon tier, ascend the seats, their straight lines of pale blue, merging exquisitely with the sombre grey of the walls and arches. Even at this early hour, they are well filled, and every movement sees a new arrival. One looks down on a rippling sea of colour. Admirals in golden-blue coats over white breeches and stockings. Army officers in scarlet and gold. Scottish chieftains in flowing dark-green tartans. The mayors of the great cities in scarlet cloaks, edged with miniver and hung with gold badges. Here a jumble of shimmering hues, a great glittering splash, that resolves itself under opera glasses into oriental potentates, with flashing turbans and ropes of jewels. There the Earl Marshal's officers, showing people to their places, with crimson gold-tipped staves, and mingling with all the white plumes of the women and their dresses of white or softest blue, or heliotrope, or pink, or lightest green. Medals and ribbons and orders and clasps and jewels, to up at one, only the yellow-grey pillars of the abbey, and the buzzbit grenadiers who alternate with the yeoman of the guard, seem motionless. All else goes billowing and sparkling in long harmonies of shade and light. No stage effect ever began to compare with this. Eyes and brain ache with the ever-moving gorgeousness of it all. Stroke follows upon stroke. Gem is added to gem. One watches a peeress, coronet in hand, moving with resplendent grace up the nave and through the arch of the choir-screen a crimson fan-shaped train edged with ermine spreading luxuriously behind her or borne by a page all exquisite in cream and gold and ruffles and long sword or a prelate in scarlet and lawn or an indian visitor a walking column of jewels or an ambassador ablaze with stars or a judge in full glory of wig and scarlet mantle or a knight in a brilliant cloak of his order and they enter not in twos or threes but in dozens till for sheer relief one is forced to rest one's eyes on the arching roof of the abbey and its cool and tranquil vistas the more distinguished among them and those higher in rank pass as i said under the arch of the choir-screen that spans the nave beneath the orchestra and the royal trumpeters who are to sound the fanfares on silver trumpets and who stand out gorgeously in their murray and gold the screen makes an excellent break as one's eye sweeps up the length of the abbey but those who are to the westward of it perhaps half the total number present find that it blocks their view of the coronation ceremonies and except the entrance of the guests and the processions they can see little or nothing of all that makes up the splendour of the occasion but being in the triforium with a liberty of movement i can pass to a point beyond the choir screen to the very angle indeed of the nave and transepts look down on the altar the thrones the coronation's chair the very scene of the king's sacred just beyond the screen are the choir stalls soon to be occupied by the royal guests and representatives in their suites above them are tiers upon tiers of seats then come the transepts the north being occupied by the peeresses and the south by the peers and above them both run vast galleries up to the level of the triforium itself for members of parliament and their wives beyond the transepts one's eye travels over galleries splashed with the red of judges the blue and white of admirals the scarlet and gold of army officers 
interspersed with the gleam of women's necks and arms, the shimmer of their dresses and the flash of jewels, past the royal boxes reserved for the kings and queens and for Queen Alexandra's private friends, till it rests on the glittering cream and gold of the altar, laden with the sacred vessels. In the space between the two transepts, called the theatre, stand the two thrones, in crimson damask, facing the altar, and set on a dais, the kings being to the right, the queens to the left and lower down. A few yards further on, still facing the altar, is the historic chair of St. Edward, the coronation seat of centuries of English kings. To the right of it, but some little distance, almost indeed under the shadow of an arch, stand two recognition chairs, facing northwards, with fold-stools in soft light blue before them. Down from the altar, over the blue carpet, ripples the sheen of magnificent Persian rugs. One has not time to take in even one-half the values of the general setting before the preliminaries begin. From St. Edward's Chapel, behind the sanctuary screen, the regalia brought forth, laid on the altar, are dedicated. A procession forms, headed by the trumpeters, followed by the choir, the sub-dean of Westminster, and the prebendaries in their crimson robes. Outbursts the splendid hymn, O God, our help in ages past, and with slow ecclesiastical pomp, the regalia are borne down the nave and into the tapestried annex, there to await the coming of the king and queen. Hardly are they deposited before the royal guests arrive. To name them would be to simply give a list of all the reigning families and of all the nations on earth. Nothing that has gone before equals the splendour of their approach, as, headed by the German crown prince and princess, they sweep up the nave in a profusion of varied magnificence, a flowing opalescent stream of dancing lights, and take their places in the choir stalls. No sooner are they seated than the blare of silver trumpets, and preceded by pursuivants in medieval bravery, the Prince of Wales enters, a wholesome, unaffected, boyish figure, in the mantle of the garter, bearing a vast plumed hat. He is escorted to a seat in the south transept, just in front of the peer's benches. All who are bound for the royal boxes pass before him, and all as they pass curtsy or bow, and the Prince acknowledges the salutation with a pleasing, because natural, jerk of his head and shoulders. He is kept for a while quite busy his three brothers and his sister, and after them a long train of princes and princesses of the blood royal, each with an attendant, page or officer or lady-in-waiting, make their obeisance on their way to the royal boxes. It is the last of the preliminaries before the arrival of the king and queen. Every seat is taken, the whole massed effect of stateliness and brilliance is at its highest point. All Europe, America, Africa, and the Orient, four hundred millions of British subjects, and the best of English beauty, valour, and worth, are represented there in those valiant seven thousand personages, awaiting the coming of the King and Queen. They come at last. One hears the booming of the guns, the faint echo of cheering without. There is not to-day the feeling of anxious tension that there was nine years ago, when no one knew whether King Edward could stand the strain of the long and arduous ceremony. But there is the universal emotion of expectancy, fed by all that has gone before, and charged with the sense of the full significance of an occasion 
that it is a religious rite and a political sacrament, as well as a spectacular pageant. All eyes and ears are turned to the west door. Slowly the procession enters. First the abbey beadle, in robes of silk and blue. Then the ten chaplains in ordinary scarlet, hooded. After them the domestic chaplains, the sacrist bearing the cross of Westminster, followed by more ecclesiastics. Then the pursuivants, all gold and murray, and the officers of the orders of knighthood in mantles of glimmering hues, heralds in blazoned coats, household officials, great nobles bearing the standards of the British dominions, India, Ireland, Scotland, England, and the United Kingdom, Lord Lansdowne holding aloft the royal standard. The four knights of the Order of the Garter are appointed to hold the canopy for the king's anointing. Great political dignitaries, chancellors and lord chamberlains, the Archbishop of Canterbury, more pursuivants, the bearers of the Queen's regalia, and then the Queen herself, pale and tense with emotion, but splendidly dignified. Her stupendous train, borne by eight ladies in snowy white, followed by double dazzling lines of attendant retinue. It is an incomparable moment, as the procession flashes onwards, and the organ and choir burst into the noble anthem, I was glad when they said unto me, We will go into the house of the Lord. And the Westminster boys fling out their greeting, Vivat Regina Maria! Vivat! 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 There is a pause of but a moment, and the final procession enters the abbey. One watches the passing of the King's regalia with a certain impatience, even though Lord Roberts and Lord Kitchener are among the sword-bearers and the golden orb and the sceptre with the dove and St. Edward's crown are among the precious treasures. At last, firm and upright, in his crimson robe of state, flanked by two bishops and an array of gentlemen-at-arms, followed by his train-bearers in red and white, attended by a glowing company of officials and yeomen of the guard, comes the king, while the anthem swells to its second movement, and the vivats of the Westminster boys crash out again. The service begins at once, that unique and noble service, a tissue of medieval mysticism, chivalry, feudalism, ecclesiasticism and politics, blending the sacred and the secular into a pact between the king and his god, and the people and their sovereign. The anointing with oil, the solemn benedictions many times multiplied, the investiture of the sovereign with quasi-sacerdotal robes, delivery to him of the regalia with prayers and injunctions, make it, in certain aspects, predominantly an ecclesiastical ceremony. On the other hand, the fourfold recognition with which the service opens, and in which the archbishop, turning to the four points of the compass, asks the people whether they are willing to do their homage and service to the king, recalls the time when monarchy was elective or rested on the fortunes of war and the administration of the oath emphasises its secular and political side. Then again, the touching of the king's heels with golden spurs, the girding on of the sword, the presentation of the glove, and the homage of the bishops, princes and peers recall the ideas and practices of feudalism and chivalry. And the whole of this curious service, except the recognition, is embedded in the communion service of the Church of England, at which king and queen themselves devoutly communicate. Is this amazing and yet moving medley, 
written in the noblest language, and with no part of it that does not bear the seal and warrant of the centuries, destined, I wonder, in the quick-moving times that lie ahead, to be the enduring form which the covenant between the English monarch and his people is destined to assume? But there is scant leisure or inclination for such questionings while the service itself proceeds while one's ears and mind and heart are filled and stirred by the chanting of the litany, while beneath one's eyes the solemn coronation oath is administered, and the king is seen to kiss the Bible and sign the roll, while the four highest of English noblemen hold the gleaming canopy of gold over his head, and the archbishop anoints him, while the chivalric investiture is in progress, and while, when the crowning is accomplished, the peers with a blinding simultaneous movement put on their coronets and god save the king resounds through the abbey and the trumpets blare and far off one hears the cannon thundering the glad tidings to the world each one of these separate ceremonies has its unforgettable moments when everything that colour music the utmost splendour of costume and of language and the solemnities and mysteries of religion can do to flood the emotions and dazzle and beguile the senses is done with superb and compelling effect the passage of the regalia from throne to altar the assumption of the emblems of simple power the first moment when the crowned and anointed king turns round to face his subjects the helping of the king on to his throne in reminiscence of the days when the monarch was lifted shield-high for his people to see the thrilling flavour of a thousand years of kingship in the words and acts of homage, the coming and going of magnificent dignitaries with emblems whose significance is woven with the earliest annals of English nationality, the unrobing of the monarch at this moment in obedience to hallowed forms, his investment at that moment still in accordance with traditions and meanings that were ancient five hundred years ago, the bowings and kneelings, the prayers and oblations, the crowning of the queen, and the culminating scene when king and queen and bishops kneel at the altar rails to receive the communion, while the tremendous words of the Anglican service roll in beauty through the listening abbey. These are episodes that must surely, in their union of the deepest messages with the most gorgeous of pageants, stay printed on the mind for ever. It is over. The benediction has been pronounced, the Te Deum is ringing out, the king and queen have passed into St. Edward's chapel behind the altar. In a few moments they reappear. The processions are reformed, the queen bearing in her right hand her sceptre and the cross, and in her left the ivory rod with the dove and wearing her crown, passes through the choir and down to the west door, the central and most imposing figure in a long line of beauty and splendour. Two minutes later, the king, wearing the imperial crown, in his right hand the sceptre with the cross, emblem of kingly power and justice, in his left hand the orb, follows in the midst of his retinue. The organ peals, God save the king, and cheer after cheer breaks in the brilliant ranks of guests and spectators. Without a hitch, and with every circumstance of historic pomp, the great ceremony is consummated, and as we leave the abbey there are borne to our ears the thunderous cheers of the multitude without acclaiming their crowned and anointed sovereigns end of section fifty this recording is in the public domain